reading of God's Word, Micah chapter 6. We'll be reading the first four verses together. We'll read them responsively. That means I'll read verses 1 and 3 alone, and we'll read verses 2 and 4 out loud and together in unison. Beginning the reading of verse 1, the Bible says, Hear ye now what the Lord saith, Arise, contend thou before the mountains, and let the hills hear thy voice. Verse 2 together, Hear ye, O mountains, the Lord's controversy, and ye strong foundation of the earth. For the Lord hath a controversy with his people, and he will plead with Israel. O my people, what have I done unto thee? And wherein have I wearied thee? Testify against me. For I brought thee up out of the land of Egypt, and redeemed thee out of the house of servants. And I sent thee before Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. This morning I'd like to preach a sermon entitled this, Why Are You Putting God on Trial? Why are you putting God on trial? Let's pray. Lord, I pray today that you'd help us as we take on, uh, Lord, what some would label to be a difficult topic. Help us to understand it. I pray that there would be hearts that seek to discern, understand, and Lord, grow from the message today. I pray that you would comfort those that need comfort, Lord, and those that need exhortation or, Lord, to a correction. Lord, may your Holy Spirit offer that as we go about God, I pray today if there's one here in our midst that has not received the free gift of eternal life, the free gift of salvation in heaven, or they would not walk out of this building today until they've done that, or that they would know for sure, beyond all shadow of a doubt, that every sin they've ever committed and will commit is forgiven, and that they have eternal peace with you. And so, Lord, I pray today that you'd feel invited to be in our midst. We're wasting our time if you don't come down and meet with us. Lord, we want that. We encourage that. We ask that. Be with us now as we consider this passage and these truths. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. The year was somewhere around 709 B.C. or before Christ. The Assyrian military had grown in both size and power. They were steamrolling countries, much like Germany steamrolled the European countries there during their early days of terror. As the Assyrians approached the northern land of Israel, the northern kingdom of Israel, they would come in and they would pillage, they would kidnap, they would murder, they would steal, they would burn. Somehow I wish we could climb into a time machine and go back to the day where a mother is sitting there in a pile of ash, watching as her house has been burned to the ground, her husband has been murdered. Her daughter has been stolen, and she has no suck to give her child because she is malnourished herself. With soot and ash on her face, she's broken. She looks up toward the heavens and she says, God, how could you let this happen? Why are you doing this to us? Several hundred years prior to these events... Solomon's son, Rehoboam, this would have been King David's grandson. Rehoboam had acted the fool and allowed the nation to be split from one country into two countries. Now the northern kingdom uh, was taken over by Jeroboam and ten of the tribes or ten of the states uh, split off and uh, became their own country and Judah and Benjamin made up the southern uh, territory or the country of Judah. Of the 19 total kings that would rule the northern kingdom, 
including Jeroboam. The Bible says this about every single one of them, that they did evil in the sight of the Lord. Every last one of them led the country to do evil. Now, Judah was a little bit better off. Close to half of the kings of Judah would do that which was right in the sight of the Lord. But every single king, every last one of them would lead the northern tribes, the nation of Israel, to do that which was wicked. Can I ask you a question this morning? How patient are you as a leader? Someone ignores what you tell them to do and you are in charge of them, whether that's at work or at home. You get ignored for a year straight. Would your patience start to wear thin? Some of you wear thin after ten minutes of that, right? Much less a year. Listen, for God and His people, it hadn't been a year. It hadn't been ten years. It hadn't been a hundred years. It had been generation after generation after generation after generation where they had totally turned their back on God. And God had done all kinds of things to try to get their attention, to get them to turn back to Him. But king after king after king after king, 19 of them in total, decided they were going to ignore their God and they were going to turn to paganism and idolatry and witchcraft and wickedness and serve the devil. And at some point, God said, okay, you've pushed my patience to the max. God used many prophets to tell His people this message. If you choose sin over me, I will punish you. I will. And there were punishments that came along, but not quite like that of the Assyrians. Now, just to give the whole history lesson here quickly, the Assyrians would wipe out the ten northern tribes, and they would never be established again. That was it. They were carried away to bondage and that was it. The two, the two southern tribes of Judah, uh, Judah and Benjamin, or the country of Judah, they would be carried away a couple hundred years later by the Babylonians and 70 years after their bondage, they were allowed to go back and have some semblance of a country. But for the Assyrians, when they wiped out these Israelites, that was it. They were done. God had had enough of their nonsense, of their sin. And God had allowed the Assyrians to come in and totally ransack and and pillage uh, this, this country. God had chosen Micah here to be the preacher, to be the prophet. And the book of Micah makes up three sermons that he preached. Uh, chapters 1, chapters 4, and chapter 6 uh, are where those sermons begin. And he lived in Judah, but this letter was primarily to his uh, uh, northern neighbor there. And, uh, uh, and, and secondarily, it was written to those that lived in Judah. He lived in a town called Morsheth Gath. That, that was about 20 miles southwest of Jerusalem. Now, if you have a car 20 miles southwest of a big city, isn't that far. But if you have to walk, that's like a whole other state, right? That's, it takes a long time to get there. So Morsheth Gath would have been the second largest city in uh, Judah there, and uh, that was where he lived, and his letter was written to those who had neglected God. Here in chapter 6, we find God and his people almost in a double lawsuit. Look down at verse 2 with me of Hebrews, or rather of uh, Micah, chapter, Micah chapter 6. The Bible says there, Hear ye, O mountains, the Lord's controversy. And ye strong foundations of the earth, for the Lord hath a controversy, a controversy with his people, and he will plead with Israel. Now, that word controversy, Brother Matt, if you could put the next slide up there for me. Here's what the word controversy uh, in the book of Micah meant or means. Dispute, brawl, quarrel, 
Okay, then we get into the legality side of it. Lawsuit, legal case, or legal process. God was saying to the children of Israel here, you want to take me to court. You want to put me on trial. And God says, you know what? I'll take you up on it. I'll take you up on it. You want to take me to court? I want to take you to court. You want to accuse me and put me on trial? You, I know I want to put you on trial. The feeling is mutual. You say, how dare they? Where do they get the idea of wanting to put God on trial? And again, I would take you back to the time when the Assyrians steamrolled through their country. And by the way, if you study the history of it, it wasn't like they came in at one time and burnt everything and stole what they wanted and left. No, there was, was a constant returning. Uh, uh, you, you woke up and, and they would be there again, back in there, stealing more people and killing more people and taking more things. And this was a nightmare that went on for years and years and years until finally... Uh, it had been so uh, ransacked and stolen from, there was really nothing else to pillage and take. Let's go back to that time where you're there, and you're thinking to yourself, God, how could you let this happen to us? What is going on? This isn't fair. What are you doing? Many people today feel like God somehow has cheated them with life. They look at some deep hurt in their life and they feel as though God has neglected them. Whether or not they have said it out loud, their actions, their actions would dictate that God, who is the perfect judge, is guilty. Guilty of ignoring them. Guilty of allowing some major hurt in their life. Guilty of treating them unfair. Guilty of allowing the sin of somebody else to adversely affect them. Guilty of allowing some abuse, some damage, some hurt to, to mess up their life or the life of someone they love. And this morning, let me exhort you with this. Don't make the mistake of putting God on trial. Don't make that mistake. Don't make that mistake. Don't make the mistake of questioning a perfect God while you yourself are imperfect. Stop and think about this. God is perfect. God is infinite. That means there is no capacity to who He is or where He is or what He is or what He knows. We, on the other hand, are imperfect. We are finite. What is a finite, imperfect human being doing putting a perfect, infinite God on trial. You say, but pastor, I feel as though God has totally forgotten about me. And I can promise you, He hasn't. You say, what about the children that are dying in a hospital with cancer today? Painful death and all the injections and all the pain and all the hurt. How about the children that are abused and taken advantage of by some perverted adult? Uh, Where is God to protect them? I would say this, be careful about putting God on trial. Be very careful about that. God is a God who is perfect and God is a God who is above all. And God is a God who looks down and sees those who have done wrong and He will judge them someday. In His timing. I propose that you and I have no right to put God on trial. When hard times come into your life and you are tempted to ask God 
where were you? Or how could you let this happen? Be careful because you're treading on dangerous ground. Today's message is a two-part sermon. I'll begin the sermon this morning and we'll conclude the sermon this evening. There are a total of seven observations I've taken from Micah's final sermon here in chapters 6 and 7. And we're going to look at the first three observations this morning and look at this idea of putting God on trial. Number one, point number one this morning, notice the court's audience. The court's audience. Look with me back at Micah chapter 6. Look at the first two verses. We see who it was that was going to be attending the trial and observing the trial. The Bible says there, Hear ye now what the Lord saith, Arise, contend thou before the mountains, before the mountains, and let the hills hear thy voice. Hear ye, O mountains, the Lord's controversy, and ye strong foundations of the earth. For the Lord hath the controversy with his people, and he will plead with Israel. Now, there are references all throughout the the Psalms and the prophets uh, made by the psalmist and the prophets uh, about uh, uh, calling out to nature, crying out to nature. And while I think there's a good uh, chance that that's all that this means, let me just say that is it possible that the mountains represent uh, the large kingdoms of the world and the hills represent the small uh, uh, groups of people or the smaller towns, uh, uh, gatherings of people there. And God is saying here to the people of Israel, He's saying, uh, you want to take me to court? Okay, we're going to invite the audience of the world to come sit in and listen. We're going to invite everyone to sit in and listen while you accuse me of where you think I have been unfair and unkind to you. Look at verse 2. You see again the word mountains referring to the large kingdoms, possibly. And then you see strong foundations of the earth. They're referring possibly to those nations who have been established for many, many years. The people of Israel, back in Genesis 12, we looked at this Wednesday night. The people of Israel were God's chosen people. God had chosen Abraham and sent him from Ur of the Chaldees and told him he would make of him a great nation. And God made the Israelites his choice people. And I'll say this today, they still are his choice people. But these choice people of God were calling him into court. And God said, okay, you want to call me into court? Let's go. We're going to have the people of the earth that are non-Jews. We'll let them gather in and watch so they can see how wrong you are. And how right I am. So we see, number one, the court's audience. Number two, we see the people's accusation. The people's accusation. Look at verse one, again in Micah 6. Hear ye now what the Lord saith. Arise, speaking to the Israelites, arise, contend thou before the mountains. What's he saying there? Make your case before the, the people from the large kingdoms. Contend or, or stand up and make your case in court against me. And let the hills hear thy voice. Verse 2. Hear ye, O mountains, the Lord's controversy. And ye strong foundations of the earth. For I, for the Lord hath a controversy with his people. And he will plead with Israel. O my people, what have I done unto thee? He's asking them. Tell the people out there. Tell the audience. Tell the jury. Tell the judge what I have done against you. And wherein have I wearied thee? Then notice the legality of the term here. The last three words of verse 3, testify against me. Testify against me. What he's saying here is that you want to bring me to court and you want to make me the defendant. You want to stand over here 
excuse me, you want to stand over here and you want to be the prosecuting, the prosecutor. Pick your attorney and you tell the audience, you tell the jury and you tell the judge who you, which I am, but you tell the judge, the jury and the audience what it is that I, God, have done against you. Where am I guilty? Now you look down and you read through Micah chapter 6 and 7 and the people didn't really accuse God of anything. They were given the opportunity in this court, per se, to go ahead and lay out their accusations against God, and they're silent. They're silent. Today I'd say to you, you may not be so bold as to shake your fist at God and say, God, why are you allowing this to happen? You may not be that bold, but are you like the Israelites in that while you may not say it with your mouth, your actions are accusing God. Look with me here. Uh, well, let me give you some subpoints here under point number two about the people's accusations. They, letter A, they accused through their disobedience. They accused through their disobedience. You see, if we really believe that God is who He says He is, we will, we will kick ourselves to try to obey Him. We'll do everything we can to live in obedience, but the truth is, the Israelites had totally given up on obeying God. They weren't even trying. They hadn't been trying again for generations. The, the, the worshiping of Baal and of Molech and all of the idolatry and all the paganism and all the ignoring God had been going on. They had been ignoring all of God's laws. In the Old Testament, God gives His children or those Jews, He gives them three sets of laws. I'd recommend if you're taking notes that you write these down because this will help you if you ever get into a, a, a discussion with someone who is trying to pick apart the Bible on you. The, the laws in the Old Testament or the laws in the books of Exodus and Leviticus, really in the Pentateuch, can be broken down into three categories. Civil laws, dietary laws, and moral laws. Civil laws, dietary laws, and moral laws. Uh, the civil laws would have been to do how to run the country. The dietary laws would have been what they could eat and what they couldn't eat. Some animals were labeled as clean. Others were labeled as unclean. And then the moral laws are just that. They're laws that dictate morality. Now, in the New Testament, God does away with the civil laws, many of them. He does away with the dietary laws. He told Peter, they're sitting on the rooftop in that vision. He said, arise and eat. And Peter said, not so, Lord, there's unclean animals. And God said, what I have called clean, call not thou unclean. But nowhere does God ever do away with the moral laws. If it's a moral law in the Old Testament, it's a moral law today. God doesn't change on that. Someone may say to you, well, uh, how can you say that homosexuality is a sin? Because uh, it was also a sin to eat, uh, eat a pig. And you eat a pig, but look at you, you're a hypocrite. You pick and choose what passages of the Bible to obey. That's a common argument that's thrown out. And to that you say to them, God did away with the dietary laws, but He never did away with the moral laws. So those still stand. Let me ask you a question this morning. Can you imagine a country that didn't have any civil laws? What if there were no, uh, what if there were no traffic laws? Those are civil laws. No speed limits. How many of you welcome the idea of no speed limits? By the way, some of us drive. We probably welcome that. How about you at least uh, would invite the idea of raising the speed limits, right? Um, out here, Main Street, Putney, instead of it being whatever it is, 25, we can make it 50, right? That's how some people drive out there. 
um, come around that curve flying. What if there were no yellow lines on the road that dictated which side to drive on? What if everybody just drove on whatever side of the road they wanted to? Now, we appreciate civil laws. We welcome them. We embrace them. But the thing is, is just like civil laws are meant to protect us, so are God's moral laws. They're not put there so that people can go, Oh, Christianity, that's a legalistic religion. No, God has put the moral laws in the Bible to protect us and to protect our joy and our happiness. And when you live inside of those moral laws, you no longer see them as this barbed wired fence like you're in a prison. You see them as a fence that keeps evil away from you. The Israelites didn't see it that way. They had neglected the moral law year after year, decade after decade, century after century, and God was fed up with it. How did Israel neglect the moral laws? Well, what, what are the Ten Commandments? Those would be kind of the, uh, the, the beginning of the, of the moral law. Obviously, there's more to it than that, but we're all familiar with the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image. Thou shalt not uh, take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Honor thy father and thy mother. Thou shalt not kill. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Thou shalt not steal. Thou shalt not bear false witness. Thou shalt not covet. The first four uh, of the Ten Commandments, they deal with our relationship with God. The second, or the last six, deal with our relationship with others. That's why Jesus said in the New Testament, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, mind, soul, and strength. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Then he said this, On these two commandments hang all the laws and the prophets. Why? Because if you're loving the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, you will honor the first four commandments. If you're loving your neighbor as yourself, you'll honor the last six commandments. By, do, by keeping those two, you'll keep the ten. But the Israelites had said, we don't want your moral laws. We have seen the hurt around us. And God, we are accusing you by not obeying that which is right. I look around at people who are very passive. Rather, they hold a passive-aggressive grudge against God. You say, Pastor, how do they hold a passive-aggressive grudge against God? By choosing to neglect His commandments. Any passive-aggressive types in the room this morning? You're too mad at me to raise your hand right now, aren't you? That was supposed to be funny. You can laugh. When someone gets passive-aggressive, they silently rebel. Now, there are two types of people in the world. There are shouters and there are pouters. I share this with people regularly. I'm a shouter. Can you tell? If, uh, if I've got a problem with you, I'm pretty quick to come tell you. I don't, you know, hold it in and smile at you. I'm thinking, I can't stand your guts. That's just not my type. If I've got a problem with you, I'm probably going to come talk to you about it. and I'll at least pray about it first and make sure I get a green light from the Lord. My nature would be to come talk to you right away. But there are those that are powders. They let it build up on the inside and build up on the inside and build up on the inside. And then when they explode, you better crawl under the bed. You better get in the car and leave. You better find another place to be because it gets ugly. There are those who are passive-aggressive against God. They won't shake their fist and verbally say anything to God. But they will put God on trial by just... They'll, they'll be, rather, they'll be accusatory toward God by saying, You know what? If you're not going to take care of me, then I'm going to live my life however I want 
I shared the story in here before. I won't give the whole story this morning. But I ran across a guy one time who was claimed to be an atheist. He was tattooed from the top of his head to the bottom of his toe, or one would assume he was wearing clothes, but everywhere I could see skin, there was a tattoo. He had piercings all over his face and in his ears. He, uh, he told me, he said, I don't believe in God. Through the series of the conversation, it came out that there was a major hurt, disappointment in his life. Come to find out, it wasn't that he hated God, it was that he was angry at God. So he had chosen to neglect God's law in an accusatory attempt at God. They accused through their disobedience. Let it be, they accused through their disinterest. If you could hold your place there on Micah, turn back over to 1 Kings chapter 12. 1 Kings chapter 12, and while you're turning there, I'll give you the backstory. Uh, I mentioned this in the introduction, but Rehoboam was Solomon's son. Rehoboam had the book of Proverbs written to him to know how to live. And you'd think that the wisest book ever to be written would have made a difference, but Rehoboam may have been the, one of the biggest fools in the Bible. Rehoboam was told how to rule the country, and he completely neglected the advice of his father. He was a wise king. And in his greed, he split the country in two. Jeroboam, no relation, took over the northern kingdom and saw that he had a problem on his hands. You see, the custom was that the people several times a year would travel to Jerusalem for the feasts at the, at the temple. And he felt as though if the people kept traveling back to Jerusalem for this feast, that he was going to lose the people back and the country would at some point join up. So he had to come up with a way of getting the people to go worship somewhere other than in Judah, somewhere other than in Jerusalem. And so he came up with an idea to create a place of worship there inside the new established country of Israel. Look at verse 28. Whereupon the king, this would be rather yeah, Jeroboam, whereupon the king took counsel and made two calves of gold and said unto them, It is too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. Behold thy gods, O Israel, which brought thee up out of the land of Egypt. And he set one in Bethel. Funny enough, the word Bethel means house of God. And the other he put in Dan. And this thing became a sin, for the people went to worship before the one, even unto Dan. So here the people now are not traveling to Jerusalem anymore. They're going to Dan. Uh, and they're going to Bethel, and they're fulfilling their religious obligation there, and they've lost interest in the one true living God. No longer are they serving Jehovah, the God that brought them through the Red Sea, the God that uh, established them in their land, uh, and all the stories that have been told. Now they're choosing to go bow down to a calf of gold. They've lost interest in God. Many in this people, many people in this world today, or actually more people in this world today, will stay home from church than will go to church. Why? They're choosing to ignore God because He isn't living up to the level of expectation that they had hoped for. God isn't to them all that they thought He would be or should be. Then you have the Christians that go to church week after week. But they are not interested in God beyond the ritual of church attendance. They're going through the procedures. But they are not truly in a deeper relationship with their maker. Let me just tell you this this morning, and some of you might think, I can't believe you'd say that as a pastor who's trying to get people to come to your church. But God is not interested in your church attendance. God doesn't want your church attendance. God doesn't want your money. 
God doesn't want your service. You say, oh, well, pastor, don't you want people to come to church? I do want people to come to church. Don't you want people to finance the work of the Lord? I do want people to finance the work of the Lord. Don't you want people to serve in roles of Sunday school and on bus routes and, and be ushers and deacons? And I want all that. But more than that, I want you to give your heart to God. Because if you'll give your heart to God, then all those things follow naturally. A lot of people today are in church, but their heart's not in church. You say, well, why are they in church? Because they think somehow they're doing God a favor. They think that by showing up to church, they're fulfilling their weekly spiritual ritual. And I would say that there are other churches in our area that will pat you on the back and make you feel good for doing that. Listen, I want you to come. If you show up every week and you let me preach at you, you give me a crowd to preach you, praise the Lord for that. But more than that, I want you to grow to a level where you come to church because you love God, not because you're coming to church because somehow you're thinking that you're doing God a favor. You're interested in God on Sunday morning. Praise the Lord. What about the rest of the week? Is God in the forefront of your heart and your mind on Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday? In Friday and Saturday? Are you interested in God then? God looked down at the Israelites and no, they had not opened their mouth and accused him, but he felt accused by their disobedience. He felt accused by generation after generation after generation of them being disinterested. And let her see, they accused through their defiance. They accused through their defiance. Let me read a couple of verses here for you. Deuteronomy chapter 9, verse 6, the Bible says, Understand therefore that the Lord thy God giveth thee not this good land to possess it for thy righteousness, for thou art a stiff-necked people. A stiff-necked people. What does that mean, to have a stiff neck? I remember being a, a young man, 8, 9, 10 years old. When I was really little, I was super compliant, did everything my parents told me to do. I was really worried about pleasing them. And then I hit that, you know, most kids hit that point where they're trying to figure themselves out on their own. And they, they don't want to do right just because mom and dad tell them to do right. And, and I was in that little defiance uh, uh, spurt. I wouldn't say I ever had a strong time of rebellion in my life, but I was experimenting a little bit with rebellion. I remember one time my dad was lecturing me. My dad is really good at giving lectures. He's a Christian school administrator up in Southington, so he's got lots of experience, not only lecturing his kids, but lecturing everybody else's too, amen? In fact, I see him going in Walmart, and he'll stop some kid, and I'm like, Dad, he's not a student at your school. Oh, okay, yeah, I can't do that. Uh, but yeah, anyway, I, that, that's, that's not, that, that doesn't actually happen. But, uh, but uh, my dad was really good at giving lectures, and he's lecturing me one day. I'd done something I shouldn't have done, and, and I'm getting the lecture, and I, I took my head and I, I, I stiffened my neck away from him. I didn't want to look at him. He was getting on me and I didn't want to make eye contact. And he said to me what every strong dad says. He said, look at me, boy. And my neck was still bent. And I kind of did the eye thing where you look up in the top corner without bending your head. And I'm looking at him, but my head is not turned because my neck is stiff. With his strong, masculine hand, he reached his fingers down, he grabbed my chin, and very firmly broke the desire of my neck and turned my head toward him. Let me tell you, my neck was still stiff. I didn't want to look at him. God said to the Israelites, he said, you're stiff-necked. 
You're stiff-necked. I have tried lecturing you. I have tried punishing you. I have tried everything I can try to get your attention. And your neck is stiff. Verse 16 of Deuteronomy 10 says this, Circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart, and be not more stiff-necked. I'm not going to go into the details of circumcision. I think everybody here probably knows what that is, how that works. God was saying to them, yes, as a people group, you have been circumcised to be set aside in the flesh. But your heart is not circumcised. Your heart is still filled with that sin. That sin kept them from having a right relationship with God. And God looked down at His people. He saw their disobedience. Their out-and-out disobedience. He saw their disinterest toward Him. He saw their defiance. And He said, these things accuse me of not being good enough for you. If I was good enough for you, you would obey me. If I was good enough for you, you would be interested in me. If I was good enough for you, you would not defy me. You would have a tender spirit toward me. Some of you here today have had some major hurt come into your life somewhere along the way either to you or someone that you love, you have put God on trial. And you're disobeying Him, or you're disinterested in Him, or you are straight out and out, you're defying Him. And I'd say to you, it is time to stop accusing God. Observation number three. We see number one, the court's audience. Number two, the people's accusation. Number three, we see the Lord's answer. The Lord's answer. So again, picture this. Mike is drawing up a visual of being inside a courtroom. The population of mankind have been invited to come be the audience. The defendant is God Himself, who is a perfect judge. That makes no sense if that was the case. The prosecutor was the people of Israel, and their prosecution case was their disobedience, their uh, their defiance, their their, uh, their their disinterest. And God is over here, and He is just keeping His mouth shut while they contend to the mountains and to the hills. And after their actions have made their point, God stands up and He answers the people on why it is that He is not guilty of anything. Letter A, we see that God's answer is this. Letter A, I gave you deliverance. I gave you deliverance. Look down at verse 4 of Micah 6. We get the answer. For I brought thee up out of the, out of the land of Egypt. God, uh, for I brought thee up out of the land of Egypt. God pulls out the history books. And reminds the people of their heritage. Now again, to get you back in the right mindset here, where were these Israelites? Some of them had been kidnapped and carried away. Others had been just outright killed. Others were sitting in, in soot and ashes. Their cities and their walls had been broken down and burned. There's fires running out of control over here. There's children wandering in the streets looking for food. There's mothers that don't have enough milk to nurse their own children. And the people are sitting there accusatory toward God. And God says, let me answer you this. Let me answer you why you think I'm not fair toward you. Let me pull out the history book or the history scroll and let me just remind you of how good you had it at one time. I delivered you. I delivered you. He said this. He said the essence of what that means. He said, did I leave you in bondage in Egypt? I could have just left you there. I could have let you build more pyramids and more great sphinx. I could have left you there to be under that taskmaster and that slavery pharaoh, but I didn't. I delivered you. Did I leave you in the wilderness? 
Oh, you wandered for 40 years because you made it as difficult on me as possible to get you out of the wilderness and into the promised land, but I didn't leave you there. Did I allow the residents of your promised land to overtake you and kill you? No, I allowed you to overtake them and and I allowed you to have this land that flows with milk and honey. When you chose idolatry and kicked me to the curb, I allowed wicked kingdoms to come in and overtake you. When you repented, did I leave you in bondage? I could have just left you in bondage. I didn't do that. I delivered you. God was saying to these Israelites who were accusatory toward Him in His answer to their accusation, He was saying, I have delivered you over and over and over and over again. So what caused the Israelites to become so cavalier toward God if He had been so kind in delivering them? Look down at verse 5. Micah chapter 6, verse 5. O my people, remember now what Balak, king of Moab, consulted. And what Balaam, the son of Baor, answered him from Shittim unto Gilgal, that ye may know the righteousness of the Lord. You may remember the story of Balaam. Balaam was loosely a prophet. Uh, at least he had enough respect to God to ask God uh, when uh, they uh, when, when uh, Balak sent to him and and Balak uh, uh, Balak sent messengers to Balaam and said, "Will you come and curse God's people?" And Balaam uh, went and asked God, "Would that be okay?" Well, what do you think the answer is going to be, Balaam? He was told no. So Balak sent more riches the second time and asked Balaam. Balaam went and said, uh, "Can I do it?" And God sarcastically told him, "Yes." Balaam took it. Oh, okay. Well, I can go do this. So Balaam gets on his donkey and he's riding to where the Israelites are so he can meet up with Balak and curse God's people. And the donkey smashes his foot three times. Balaam becomes so angry that he starts beating his donkey. The donkey starts talking to Balaam. Now, if a donkey started talking to me, I'd ask him if his name was Mr. Ed. Amen? If a donkey started talking to me, I think I'd be a little taken aback, but not Balaam. He starts yelling back at the donkey. God opens his eyes and there's an angel standing there with a flaming sword of fire. God tells Balaam, he says, okay, you can go, but I am going to put the words in your mouth. So Balak takes Balaam up three separate times to a high place where they're looking down over the Israelites. And God uses Balaam's mouth as a mouthpiece. And God says through Balaam's vocal cords and mouth what he wants to say, which is a blessing on his people. Balak is getting more angry and more angry and more angry each time. I brought you here to curse these people and you just keep blessing them. After all that was over, Balaam said to Balak, he said, look, I could not curse them. I just could. God would not let me do it. He said, but I can give you some advice that will bring down the Israelites. What allowed the Assyrians to come in and bring the Israelites into bondage? What pulled their hearts away from God? What Balak advised, or rather what Balaam advised Balak to do, ended up being the demise of the country. What did he tell them? He said, take your loose, pretty, seductive little girls and send them down into the camp. Let them marry those pure Israeli boys. Let them take their idols down in there. Let them pull their heart away to idolatry. How severe was that advice from Balaam to Balak? Well, it's mentioned here in Micah. All those years later. All those generations later. 
And in fact, it is even mentioned, the doctrine of Balaam is even mentioned in the New Testament as being a major problem. You see, the reason why they were being overtaken by the Assyrians, the reason why all of the genocide that was being committed and the pain and the hurt and the sorrow was happening had nothing to do with the character of God. It had to do with their lack of character. I'm going to tell you something today that is difficult to understand or difficult to, to, to come to grips with. But when pain and hurt comes into your life, it is never God's fault. It is never God's fault. You say, well, why didn't God step in and do something about it? Did you ever stop and consider that maybe God entrusted another human being that dropped the ball? Did you ever consider the fact that, that, uh, that God is perfect? His way is perfect. And he puts imperfect men in charge of making sure his will is carried out. And sometimes it just doesn't happen. This morning I'm here to tell you that if you have put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ to save you, then he's done a whole lot for you already. The truth is, if all God did was save my soul and then turn his back on me and neglected me for the rest of my life, he is still a good God. There's nothing more important going to heaven when you die. That's all. He, he doesn't owe us anything. He doesn't even owe us that. Today, if you're here and you're hurting some trial in your life and you're questioning God, I would ask you this. Did he give you the deliverance of eternal hope in heaven? Then you got nothing to question him on. Letter B, he said this. He said, I gave you direction. I gave you deliverance. This is his answer to their accusation. Letter B, I gave you direction. Look down at verse 4 again of Micah 6. It says, For I brought thee up out of the land of Egypt, and redeemed thee out of the house of servants, and I sent before thee Moses and Aram, uh, Moses and Aaron and Miriam. Now let me just say this morning, these leaders weren't perfect. Moses had an anger problem. Of course, if you led the Israelites, you probably would have developed one as well if you don't already have one. Aaron struggled with idolatry. Miriam struggled with compliance and falling in line and being obedient. These leaders weren't perfect. They made mistakes. They fumbled the ball at times. But my goodness, they sure tried their hardest. They sure did their best. I have a sermon that I've been working on uh, for quite some time. And I I believe it's ready to go from a, a technical standpoint. But I just haven't gotten a green light from the Lord to preach it yet. The title of the sermon is, what to do when leadership lets you down. It's a sermon I've put together over a lot of events that have happened in my life where leadership has deeply and severely failed me and hurt me. One thing I have learned from my own life and from my own emotions and then dealing with other people in their lives and their emotions is that when leadership hurts us, when leadership lets us down, there is a tendency to want to blame God. Let me just remind you that those leaders are just as imperfect and frail as you are. You can't blame a perfect God for a failure of a leader in your life, whether that be a president, a governor, a mayor, a police officer, a pastor, a spiritual leader, a husband, a father, an uncle. No matter what it is, you cannot blame God for other people's mistakes. Let me just say here as well that God had given them pretty good leaders. They, uh, they pushed Moses to his limits. 
Aaron struggled with idolatry, as I mentioned for a moment, but he got his act together and he was a pretty good high priest. Miriam, can you imagine the needs of having that many women? Miriam would have been the first women's liver, amen? Uh, she was there leading the ladies in Israel. God labeled her a leader, a leader here in this passage. Several million Jews walking across the, Israel, uh, the, the, uh, the desert over to the new land, uh, their promised land. Can you imagine the needs that only a woman would know how to answer? Miriam was there to lead. I'm here to te- today to tell you, friend, that God has given you some leaders in your life that are meant to get you on the right path. Don't be putting God on trial. I'll finish the sermon this morning, and I have a whole lot more to say, but I've got, got it uh, here for the evening service. I'll finish the sermon this morning with this story. There once lived a Jewish family in Czechoslovakia. This would have been right about the time that World War II happened. A Jewish family lived in Czechoslovakia where the son started questioning God about the reports coming out of Germany and the persecution of Jews. This boy soon declared himself to be an agnostic. But then the Nazis invaded Czechoslovakia and his family was brought into the concentration camps. One day, this boy got into an altercation with one of the Nazi guards and struck the Nazi guard down. The dad of the boy suddenly jumped in and declared that he was the one that was responsible for the altercation. And the dad was shot on sight with his body left out as a warning. In the camp, the bitterness of the man, that that boy, boiled over. So what he did is he grabbed three rabbis and brought them together to hold a trial. They entitled it, The Trial of God. In this trial, the rabbis debated about how God could allow the Holocaust to happen. If God had cast off Israel and if Germany was the new chosen people. In the end of the trial that they had set up for God, they declared the word chayav, meaning you owe us something, God. Instead of accusing him guilty, they said you owe us something. The story ends with the sun setting and everyone slushes away to evening prayer. And I got to say that uh, the Holocaust is a difficult thing to answer. I've, uh, I've been to the Holocaust Museum in Washington, D.C. I wonder how many of you have been to that museum. Anybody here? What a gripping place. The pictures you see, the emotion that you feel. I remember walking out of there with my heart hurt, my stomach sick, and tears flowing down my cheeks. And I can't answer as the why that God let the Holocaust happen. I won't attempt to publicly answer that question. But I will say this, talking to Pastor David Levine, our, one of our assistant pastors who's a Jew, he said there were hardly any Jews getting saved before the Holocaust, and there have been a whole bunch get saved afterwards. God is the master at taking our hurts and turning them into something beautiful, but we have to let him do it. We have to let him do it. And it won't happen if you have him on trial in your heart. Can I ask you this morning, do you have a controversy with God? Do you have a beef with God? Tonight we'll talk about God's punishment for those who live in objection to Him. And we'll look at God's plan for restoration. I ask you this morning, do you have God on trial? It's time to take Him off 
the defendant bench. Let him be the judge of your life again. Let's have our heads bowed and our eyes closed this morning. I thank you so much for your attention. You've been an easy 